Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the RAI on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Alice Kelly and I'm a postdoctoral fellow here in the history of the United States and World War I. And it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Christopher Capozzola as our third RAI centenary lecturer this afternoon. So I'd like to begin by saying a heartfelt thank you to Mary Jo Jacoby and Patrick Jefferson, who couldn't be here today, but who, for making these centenary lectures possible and to the Rothermere Foundation for facilitating new scholarship into the First World War in the centenary year of American entry. So Dr. Capozzola is a, the Assistant Professor of History at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and he works on the political and cultural history of the United States from the late 19th century to the present. His training was at Harvard and Columbia, and he's the author of the wonderful prize-winning Uncle Sam Wants You, World War I and the Making of the American Citizen, which came out from OUP in 2008. Um, and this is a wide-ranging and absolutely compelling study of the relation between citizens, voluntary associations, and the federal government during World War I. And the prize that this book won was the Lowy P. Rudnick Book Prize, am I saying that right? Of the New American Studies Association in 2010. But the book he's now working on, which we're eager to hear about at one point in the future, is called Brothers of the Pacific, and it's a history of Filipino soldiers in the American military in the 20th century. Very globalising and localising the Great War, Adrian, right? So the other interesting aspect of Dr. Capazola's work, which he's just been talking about to our graduate students and early career researchers in our masterclass this afternoon, is his work in public history. So... He is one of the curators behind a wonderful online multimedia project called The Volunteers, Americans Join World War I, 1914 to 19, which is this wonderful online resource for students. It's an educational project. Please look it up. It's really worthwhile. And he's also worked as a curator on an exhibition at the uh, Museum of the History of New York City uh, called Palaces for the People, Gustavino and Americans' Great Public Space, and there's probably numerous other things you've done in public history that I haven't said here. Uh, so as well as numerous invited lectures in all sorts of different places, he's also regularly appeared on TV, so we have a, a celebrity in our midst, on C-SPAN, the History Channel, History Detectives, and most recently he's been um, featured in the new six-hour PBS American Experience documentary called The Great War on the American Experience of World War I. So it's our great pleasure to have you here today. And uh, Chris is here to present some entirely new scholarship, and I understand he's willing to have some feedback on it in, in the question session. So without further ado, I turn to Dr. Cabazzola for his lecture, Merchants of Death, the Nye Commission, the Business of War, and the Politics of Memory. All right, thank you. <laughs> All right. All right, so... Uh, uh, thank you, uh, first of all, to Alice for the introduction. I'm going to borrow a line from the distinguished American historian Linda Kerber, who said that the reason why historians uh, are always traveling all around the world to give lectures is not to give lectures, but to hear themselves get introduced. Um, so thank you uh, for that. And then also just thank you for everyone um, at Oxford who's made this, uh, made this trip possible, um, to Alice, to Hugh David, uh, to Joanne Stevenson, um, and then again to Mary Jo Jacoby and Patrick Jefferson for this. Um, and uh, it's exciting to be part of this Globalizing and Localizing the Great War series. Um, uh, it's also exciting to be part of uh, sort of an examination of 
U.S. history outside the United States, um, which is sort of always a way of challenging our uh, parochial assumptions and methodologies. Um, and as, uh, as Dr. Kelly explained, this is uh, brand new work. Um, so uh, I have been giving a lot of talks about America in the First World War for the centennial, uh, based on the book that I wrote in 2008. Um, and I thought, well, I could just come and, and give that lecture again, but um, I've now realized that about six versions of that lecture are on the internet, so <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that I needed to, to just do it a seventh time. Um, and I have been thinking about uh, working on a project that, um, that uh, asks some fundamental questions about the relationship between um, the, the business of the war um, and the history of American business and the history of American politics. Um, and this had led me uh, to uh, a particular sort of moment in U.S. history uh, between 1934 and 1936, a series of examinations uh, in inquiries into uh, the politics of, of the munitions industry, the politics of, of business in World War I that were undertaken by the U.S. Congress, the so-called Nye Commission uh, Committee, which I'll tell you a little bit about in the minute. Um, but what I'm trying to do here, in if, if I write this as a book, and an hour and a half from now I might decide that I'm never going to write about it again, but if I do, it's designed to be a book for general readers, right, uh, who are, um, you know, mildly interested in, in business, mildly interested in politics, in war, um, who, but who want to think about the relationship between business and war, but who tend to get scared away when they see the words military-industrial complex. <laughs> Um, which is a term that I won't generally use um, during the lecture this afternoon. Um, so I'm trying to, so my, uh, my academic historiographic attempt is to generate new ways of thinking about that nexus between business and politics, um, new sort of theoretical and conceptual tools. Uh, and then my sort of uh, narrative aim um, is to use a people-focused, character-driven sort of narrative story to, to get at that. So I'll give you a little bit of the contours of both the questions and, and the narrative, and then uh, you can tell me where to go next, because the research is only partly done. Um, so you can tell me what, uh, what you want to hear more about. So I start actually not uh, in the First World War, uh, but a generation later. Uh, on January 15th, 1936, at a meeting, a session in Washington at the Senate Office Building, uh, where the Special Commission investigating the munitions industry uh, the so-called Nye Committee, chaired by North Dakota Senator Gerald Nye, was meeting. Now that day, uh, the committee had already been at work for nearly two years, and the committee was that day investigating the role of, of banks, and in particular, the role of the House of Morgan um, in influencing the decision by President Woodrow Wilson to call in April 1917 for a declaration of war against Germany. Now when uh, in the middle of the events that afternoon when Senator Nye accused Wilson of having, quote, falsified concerning Wilson's knowledge of Europe's pre-war secret treaties, the room exploded in anger. Senator Thomas Connolly of Texas attacked Nye for his, quote, infamous charges. Quote, some checker-playing, beer-drinking back room of some low house is the only place fit for the kind of language which the senator from North Dakota this senator who is going to lead us out toward peace puts into the record about a dead man. And Virginia Senator Carter Glass similarly condemned Nye for, quote, 
the unspeakable accusation against a dead president, dirt daubing the sepulcher of Woodrow Wilson. Right. So uh, it was a lively afternoon in Washington that day. Uh, but in many ways, we have uh, Senators Tom Connolly and Carter Glass to thank for the ways that history has treated the Nye Committee uh, in the 80 years since its final days, relegating it to ch the checker-playing, beer-drinking back rooms of the historical profession, um, to some low houses of social scientific analysis. Um, and uh, in some ways also, uh, Carter Glass would surely um, be uh, traumatized by uh, how history has treated the reputation of his hero, Woodrow Wilson, um, who, he, uh, who that man, uh, that dead president, right, uh, who, who Connolly himself called a great man, a good man, a man who when, al when alive had the courage to meet his enemies face to face and eye to eye. History has been less kind to Woodrow Wilson of late. Um, but Glass also wasn't particularly kind to the Nye Committee. He did much to dirt daub it himself. Um, and with it, uh, in many ways, most scholarly inquiries into the relationship of business and national defense. So we generally know this story, if we know it at all, um, as a chapter in the history of the Second World War, um, as a chapter in the debates over isolationism and internationalism, um, about the, uh, the question of whether the United States would provide uh, aid to Britain, um, whether the United States would adopt neutrality acts. And the Nye Committee is sort of one sort of momentary sort of uh, window into debates Americans were having in the mid-1930s about the Second World War. Uh, but what I want to do this afternoon uh, is to situate the, this, the committee in general um, and, its, uh, and through its conclusion um, not in the run-up to World War II, but as a legacy of World War I, um, as more specifically a fight over Woodrow Wilson, um, that good man, uh, and his legacies, um, and a fight over uh, the relationship between uh, business and defense in the First World War. And that when we see the Nye Committee as a part of the politics of memory around the First World War, rather than the politics of foreign relations anticipating the Second, um, that we see some of its questions in a new light. Right? So rather than begin with the usual frames that scholars have used to think about the Nye Committee, isolationism, conspiracy theory, xenophobia, right? um, uh, aspects which demand uh, the impossible task of scrubbing the dirt off of the Nye Committee, what if we started instead with the actual fundamental inquiry of the Nye Committee itself? Right? What was its actual question? So its question was, what is the impact of the defense industry on the making of U.S. foreign policy? Let's, let's start with that question. What is the impact of the defense industry on the making of U.S. foreign policy? As a historian, don't you want to know the answer to that question? Right? Um, and, uh, and as a, a citizen, <laughs> uh, don't you also want to know uh, the answer to that question uh, if you're a citizen of the United States? Right? Isn't it something we should know? Isn't it something as scholars we should be able to answer? Now, if in 1936 and in the years that followed, the Nye Committee ended in disrepute, it certainly did not begin that way. Right? Uh, just two years earlier, um, how different everything looked um, in 1934. Um, that in 1934 was the sort of uh, honest mirabilis of the merchants of death uh, theory, right? In which, in books and articles, um, in barber shops and bar rooms, um, even in those low-down houses um, that Connolly warned about, 
Americans that year learned that inscrutable financial arrangements had dragged the United States into the First World War in the interests of munitions makers and bankers and were warned uh, that it could happen again. Right? So this is the fundamental concern uh, that Americans have in 1934, um, that they had gone to war for the wrong reasons, that they had been lied to and manipulated, and that if they did not take collective political action, it would happen again. Now, exposés of the munitions industry splashed across the pages of mainstream magazines all year. Um, from Arms and the Men, a very influential pub uh, publication in Fortune in March of 1934, to Slaughter for Sale in Harper's later that year, and even between the staid gray covers of Foreign Affairs, uh, which gently inquired into, quote, arms manufacturers and the public. Now, of all of these publications, nothing captured the public imagination more uh, than a book by Helmut uh, Engelbrecht and Frank Hannigan called Merchants of Death, a study of the international armaments industry. Right? And it was that title uh, that captured the imagination of the American public in 1934. Uh, the title captured their imagination um, probably more than the content of the book, um, which lurches bet uh, between uh, dreary and lurid uh, <laughs> prose, but I highly recommend reading it um, uh, in, in any case. Now, um, uh, it also uh, captured the uh, national imagination by another metric, which was that the book was so much in the news, and the idea, this notion, uh, was so much in the news, that Merchants of Death became the official selection of the Book of the Month Club in April 1934. Right? So this was what Americans were talking about. Um, and it was a, a viewpoint that was widely shared, right? a viewpoint um, that in 2017 um, can often mark one toward uh, the political fringe of the right or left, uh, was in 1934 utterly commonplace view to hold. Right? Uh, nearly everyone in this room would have believed uh, the, in the Merchants of Death theory in 1934. Now, where did that view come from, uh, and what happened when it came under scrutiny in the halls of Congress? That's what I want to turn to now. Now, the first thing to know about the Merchants of Death theory is that it's not a coherent theory, um, and that it is assembled from many different parts. Um, and so different people held different aspects of it, which I'll trace in a minute. Um, but elements of it were there from the very beginning of the war itself. So the first Congress of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom that met at The Hague in 1915, or what later became WILF, uh, thought that, quote, the private profits accruing from the great arms factories are a powerful hindrance to the abolition of war. Right? So some aspect that basically the profit motive um, is uh, fundamentally an obstacle to peace. Uh, the women of The Hague were, of course, were not alone in holding views like this. Uh, Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan condemned loans to the belligerent powers during the war, in the neutrality period in particular, uh, with a line, quote, Money is the worst of all contrabands because it commands everything else. Right? So a concern not just that profit motives um, make peace impossible, but in, in Brian's case, a worry that uh, the profit motives will distort priorities of, of, of diplomats and others. Right? So different elements are at work here. Uh, and then, of course, it was also uh, uh, articulated on the left. In 1916, the Chicago Federation of Labor, which was a kind of uh, radical le left uh, wing of the American Federation of Labor, called for public ownership of war industries um, on, on two principles. First, to thwart the profit motive, um, just as the women of The Hague wanted to do. Um, and then second, to democratize foreign policy decision making. 
right? So another sort of aspect of, of the theory is trying to sort of get at of who decides. How do we make sure that the people decide rather than the munitions makers, right? Uh, while in 1916, the, the platform of the Socialist uh, Party of America that year insisted that, quote, not until the capitalist system of production is destroyed and replaced by industrial democracy will wars for markets cease and international peace be securely established. Right? So in that sense, their concern is for the profit motive generally uh, and not specifically for the profit motive in war. As the drums beat increasingly for war in 1917, the voices continued. And during the debate uh, in that first week of April, uh, the Minnesota Union advocate noted that some authorities, quote, have made big fortunes by turning out war munitions for the nations that have been fighting. So sometimes it's a concern um, about whether uh, some people are profiting from the war more or less than others. Right? And at their emergency convention, the Socialist Party of America expressed its view that submarine warfare did not interfere with Americans but rather with, quote, the opportunity of certain groups of American capitalists to coin cold profits. Right? So again, a concern not, uh, more about profit uh, in, in general and its distribution uh, in, in this case. Now, as you can see, the elements of the merchants of death theory um, combine different political flavors, different rhetorics, and they often draw on ongoing politics, uh, whether ov over government and regulation, um, whether the ongoing politics of progressivism and state control, um, or of socialism uh, and its economic theory. But some were also a specific response to the economic dislocations that accompanied U.S. participation in World War I. So the coming of war in 1914 brought panic on the New York Stock Exchange, which actually closed for several months that fall, uh, and a run on the banks uh, that made savings difficult for ordinary people. The collapse of international trade emptied the nation's tariff coffers um, over in the the uh, early years of 14 and 15. And in 1916, as Americans were most vigorously debating neutrality, uh, Congress imposed new taxes on the profits of munitions makers. Right? So munitions manufacturers are already under the microscope as early as 1916 by Congress. Yet still, the war came. After April 1917, the politics of, of, uh, of business and war continued, um, but focused in particular on finance. Um, and the demands of war finance far outran anyone's ability to comprehend, let alone to control. So the Treasury Secretary, William, Mac William Gibbs McAdoo, announced at the outset of the war that it would cost $3.5 billion. But by the summer of 1917, um, as a plan uh, to raise $2 billion in revenue sat on his desk, he already knew that the war was going to cost more like $15 billion. Quote, with each fresh calculation, the sum had grown larger, he later reflected. And the figures were appalling. It was 10 times more expensive than the Civil War, and it baffled politicians, economists, and, and the public alike. Not that there was any shortage of answers about what to do about it. Radicals urged the, quote, conscription of wealth to accompany the conscription of men. Progressives emphasized taxes and argued for the need to, quote, pay as you fight. Uh, whereas Woodrow Wilson, uh, and, and Woodrow Wilson agreed, thinking that, quote, so far as practicable, the burden of the war should be borne by taxation of the present generation rather than loans imposed on the next. Business warned, um, uh, by contrast, that high taxes would stifle investment in war industries, that the war would be better fought um, if industry was incentivized to produce for it and urged instead the sale of bonds. 
which would have the added effect of dampening inflation, uh, creating a wartime ownership society, and instilling a lifelong culture of thrift among the working class. Now everyone had a theory, everyone had an idea, and everyone knew that there was a lot at stake in the effort, um, an effort to, quote, uh, strike a balance between justice and revenue, um, as one progressive put it at the time. Um, or as progressive tax reformer Amos Pinchot noted, quote, if we ever get a big income tax on in wartime, some of it, a lot of it, is going to stick. Right? So you can see that progressive impulse at work. And hence, the vicious battle that followed in 1917 over whether to tax the war profits or the excess profits of corporations. Right? Um, and the terms matter. Um, because one of those taxes, by definition, would be repealed at the war's end. The other, just maybe, could be made to stick. Right? So progressives, um, progressives wanted excess profits taxes. Um, and conservatives tended to want, if they were willing to have anything, they wanted war profits taxes because they knew that war profits taxes had an end date and excess profits did not. Now in the end, Congress, uh, in its inimitable fashion, passed both a war profits tax and an excess profits tax, uh, much to the dismay of the Wall Street Journal, uh, which denounced uh, both, but especially the excess profits tax, as, quote, hasty and ill-advised legislation rushed through Washington by politicians desiring political favor with the many by taxing the capital of the few. Now that, in fact, is actually an accurate description of the excess profit tax um, and its aims, um, but it also helped, uh, to, in part, to pay for the war, along with bonds, saving stamps, taxes on chewing gum and movie tickets, um, and willy-nilly uh, currency creation that sparked rampant inflation that doubled the cost of living over the course of the war, just between 1916 and 19 alone. This was hardly a coherent vision of a balance between justice and revenue. Right? If people were looking uh, to balance justice and revenue, um, they had instead come upon an intellectual and political hodgepodge, um, much like progressivism itself. Now, in terms of everyday experience during the war, most wartime Americans encountered the financial burdens of citizenship through bonds and not through taxes, um, either the excess profit taxes on corporations or the income taxes that were uh, imposed only on the very richest of Americans. Right, this is a time when the top bracket of the income tax is one that applies only to John D. Rockefeller <laughs> himself. Right? Um, so, uh, so the number of Americans reached by the income tax is still quite small. Americans were told that a liberty bond was, quote, a certificate of citizenship. Uh, and there were times when it actually operated as such. In 1918, when C.A. Darmer, a German-American from Tacoma, Washington, refused to buy a bond on the ground that, quote, it would be like kicking my own mother, a federal court rescinded his naturalization as a U.S. citizen. Darmer was not the only American who resisted purchase, uh, nor the only one who faced coercion to do so. Bosses sold bonds to employees on the shop floor. Preachers sold them in the pews of their churches. Policemen and judges issued them as alternatives to punishment. And bonds could, in fact, actually operate as punishment um, in, po in popular uh, enforcement. As in April 1918, when a group of shop clerks in Canton, Ohio, wrapped one of their co-workers in the American flag, dragged her to the bank, and forced her to purchase a $50 bond. Now, some federal courts ruled during the war that refusal to purchase a bond constituted disloyalty. When a certain Mr. Pape, and that's the only name we have uh, for him, 
described in court records as, quote, a prominent citizen of Quincy, Illinois, well-educated, a member of the bar, and stands well among his neighbors. Uh, now, he did not appear on Quincy's bond sale lists. And then a group of townspeople appointed, quote, a special committee to ask him his reasons for his omission of patriotic duty. And Pape's explanation did not suffice, and he was soon convicted under the Espionage Act. Espionage Act convictions also awaited Eugene Debs for criticizing business interests in the war and arguing that the working classes had no political interest in supporting the US war effort. And the Espionage Act was also applied to three socialists from Albany, New York. Having grown up near Albany, New York, I can assure you there are not many more than three socialists <laughs> uh, to be found in that area. Um, but these three uh, warned in the spring of 1917 that, quote, and this quote matters, listen, our entry into the war was determined by the certainty that if the Allies do not win, J.P. Morgan's loans to the Allies will be repudiated, and those American investors who bit on his promises would be hooked. Right? Now, for this, they were convicted under the full terms of the Espionage Act to 15 years of prison, uh, sentences that were later con uh, commuted, but their convictions were upheld by the Supreme Court in 1920, which deemed them a, quote, patently false statement. Uh, now, in fact, a remarkable percentage of Espionage Act convictions, um, if you look carefully at them, came for asserting that uh, the, an identity of US war aims with those of private industry, suggesting both how broadly that opinion was held um, and also how quickly it became dangerous to hold it um, after April 1917, um, and also how it functioned even during the war in the generation of historical narratives about the war's origins. Right? Notice that these kinds of claims are, already are causal and historical claims um, about why the United States has entered the war um, and what, uh, you know, what, has, what has caused the United States to do this. Now, what had been in the 1910s a progressive view um, and then was marginalized or silenced during the war um, into, a sort of into a radical leftist claim um, then became actually once again increasingly mainstream after the war was over. Right? So notice uh, Article 8 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. Quote, the members of the League agree that the manufacture by private enterprise of munitions and implements of war is open to grave objections. The Council shall advise how the evil effects attendant upon such manufacture can be prevented. And just a few years after the war, European statesmen themselves affirmed this view. David Lloyd George wrote that trade with the Allies, quote, had its influence in holding back the hand of the American government in its dealings with Britain. Um, and André Tardieu of France wrote that once the U.S. was economically tied to Britain and France, quote, the victory of the Allies became essential to the United States. Right? Notice, those are words that could have come exactly from the mouth of second-rate Albany socialists in 1917. And now, uh, 10 years after the war, uh, they are coming from Tardieu, from David Lloyd George, uh, from others. Even President Warren Harding insisted that in any future war, there would be, quote, no swollen fortunes. So when the Merchants of Death arrived in bookstores in 1934, it entered public dis discussion not from the far left, right? It actually was bubbling up from, uh, from below, from the center, um, if anywhere, if nowhere else. Right? So, 
What then happens in 1934 itself? The surge of interest um, in these contentious affairs of public policy captured the attention of politicians who knew that the public wanted them to do something. They knew this was uh, both a, an obligation uh, for them to, to do something and also an opportunity um, for them to settle some scores and win some votes. Politicians were being pressed from all sides, from this sort of intellectual and political hodgepodge of constituencies uh, to uh, engage in more searching inquiries. Um, and there's a sort of weird alliance between peace groups and veterans groups um, that often had very little to do with one another in the post-war period, um, but that both demanded uh, further inquiry into, uh, into the, 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 the defense industries. Now, the leading uh, person on the charge for this is a fascinating figure who um, is much forgotten by history, a woman named Dorothy Detzer who in 1932 had just taken up the role of executive secretary of the American section of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Um, she was a lifelong progressive. She, during the First World War, she had spent uh, the year, war years at Hull House in Chicago working with immigrant groups and other uh, sort of uh, veteran or sort of uh, wives and dependents of soldiers who were displaced uh, during the war. She went in 1920 uh, to Vienna and to Russia to volunteer with the American Friends Service Committee. Um, her opposition to war was intellectual and, and principled. It was also deeply personal uh, and had been amplified just after 1920 uh, by the experience of watching her twin brother die of the effects of mustard gas to which he had been exposed during the war. So Detzer is, uh, is really is sort of, uh, is kind of the, the, the pressing figure on this, but she needs a partner on Capitol Hill. And she found one in Senator Gerald Nye of North Dakota. When he took up the chair of, the, of this committee, uh, the 42-year-old wa uh, senator was already uh, an experienced senator with nine years of experience under his belt. He came in as a sort of very young sort of boy senator uh, from North Dakota uh, nine years earlier. He had started out as, a sm as the small town publisher of the Hortonville Review in Wisconsin, um, a newspaper I'm not particularly familiar with, um, but uh, maybe someone here is a subscriber. <coughs> and so Nye was, you know, sort of small town newspaper man who was very much in the orbit of, uh, of, of La Follette uh, um, and sort of, of the sort of Midwestern progressivism of the 1910s uh, and then became an enthusiast for the Nonpartisan League, which is sort of a second generation of American populists uh, that's active in the, in the upper Midwest in the 1910s. And he continued this populist and anti-monopoly streak uh, throughout his career. Uh, but this sort of had led him in the 1930s um, to have a sort of oppositional stance to, uh, to sort of big government um, and a voice for the people in this populist moment of the 1930s that some of his fellow uh, thinking, uh, his fellow senators, um, and he came to be called the, the sons of the wild jackass. Uh, but you know, the 1930s were actually a good time to be a uh, wild jackass, so uh, it's actually sort of Nye really comes into his own in this moment. Uh, and notice that the, the resolution authorizing the inquiry um, passed unanimously. Um, and President Franklin Roosevelt, who was, of course, the deftest of judges of the public mood, coolly endorsed its work and wanted it to begin, right? thinking that it, would, uh, it, would, it might call for greater government regulation of industry, something that in 1934 uh, is all about the New Deal, um, and that it might sort of call into question uh, sort of certain aspects of the banking industry and, and the DuPont uh, and, and other arms industries that were known to be part of this uh, emerging anti-New Deal conservative coalition that Roosevelt wants to, to, uh, to uh, take on. 
Now, Nye himself hoped that the committee would, quote, uh, show what monkeys the munitions makers can make of the otherwise intelligent people of America. Um, and I will uh, spare you the blow-by-blow blow of their day-to-day -day, uh, investigations, which generated thousands of pages of, of transcripts. Um, there were 93 hearings uh, between September of 1934 and February of 1936. Um, uh, this is the, uh, the largest uh, single inquiry by uh, the United States Congress into any aspects of defense policy um, in all of our 225 years of history. Um, they inquired into munitions manufacture, they inquired into shipbuilding, they looked at fiscal policy, uh, and they looked at the economic incentives sh specifically shaping the decision for war in April of 1917. Now, the hearings revealed a great deal of information, um, those thousands of pages of transcripts, but um, no really obvious, clear conclusions. Um, or, or more correctly, um, a series of conclusions that tended to uh, confirm the views of peop uh, that people already held. Um, that, um, you know, if you really, if you already believed the merchants of death theory, then you would find much in the Nye Commission to confirm it. If you were skeptical of this theory, um, you would find little there uh, to change your mind. Um, but it was certainly much watched by the American public, um, and certainly thought they thought a great deal about it. Uh, we can see some of this from the correspondence in the files of the Nye Committee, um, which I've been going through at the National Archives in Washington. And uh, it's worth bearing in mind that letters to any congressional committee are a, 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 a biased source. Uh, scholars have documented that uh, congressional archives disproportionately uh, preserves uh, records of, of mail that agrees with a member of Congress rather than those that, that do not. And um, so we do have to take it with a, a grain of salt. But from all around the country came requests for information. I'm particularly fascinated that sort of the number one sort of debate topic in high schools and colleges and debating societies in 34 and 35 and 36 is this question of, <coughs> of should the munitions industry be nationalized, right? Um, or some other formulation of, of that question. Um, <coughs> there were uh, lots of calls tonight to tackle the, quote, munitions racket, um, uh, including from G.D. Hansen, 75 years old, of Harrisburg, South Dakota whose son returned from France, quote, shell-shocked and almost a nervous wreck. So I plead with you, do not spare anything or anyone to stop the horror. Charles Knoll of Birmingham, Alabama wrote nigh that, quote, I wish I could shake hands with you. And praise also came from Lorna Benedict of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Quote, I am for you, she wrote, even though I am not a Democrat. I'm unaware of the fact that neither was Gerald Nye. Yeah. Um, <coughs> But in any case, right, uh, the, the letters in the Nye Committee uh, files are um, probably not going to be the, the richest things for me to work with, but they give you a sense of what people are thinking about and how they're talking about it. And even the words that they use, racket, comes up a lot, right, um, as some way of, of them thinking about how this business works. But support for the Nye Committee and its work was nationally pervasive. In March 1936, Gallup uh, conducted a nationwide poll which asked the following question. Should the manufacture and sale of war munitions for private profit be prohibited? And with, more than, with almost 100,000 people responding to the poll, 82% of Americans affirmed yes. Right? Now, uh, this might be the kind of question um, that is sort of like, you know, do you like apple pie, you know, mother, your mom, and, your, and puppies? Um, and it might be that, uh, you know, the question uh, uh, obscured the intellectual and political hodgepodge um, that led many people to say that the answer to that question should be yes. 
But nevertheless, should the manufacture and sale of war munitions for private profit be prohibited? If you ask that today, I don't think you would get an 82% yes answer. Now, interestingly, uh, this is uh, not just uh, a popular opinion or, or call in the United States. Um, so uh, this is not the only country considering this question. Um, in the UK, the British Labour Party supported a Royal Commission on the Manufacture and Trade, Manufacture of and Trade in Armaments, um, which was established in 1935 after the Nye Committee had started its work and after it started to uh, sort of um, uh, criticize uh, much of the, the, the British sort of defense industry, um, the British sort of take on their own sort of uh, study. The, the, the Royal Commission is a de designed in some ways to be a rival to Nye, um, and it uh, nevertheless uh, captures some of the same public interest in this issue. 2.1 million Britons wrote into the Royal Committee uh, with their views. Uh, not all of those have been preserved um, in the National Archives, thankfully, because that would take a long time to read through. <laughs> Uh, but it shows the popular, the, 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 the intense um, sort of um, interest that people both uh, in the United States and elsewhere took into this issue. Um, <coughs> the Royal Commission recommended greater oversight over, but not nationalization of uh, defense industries um, uh, when, its, when its report came out. But importantly, its report concludes after the Rhineland crisis um, and after uh, Britain really understands itself as being more in a pre-war situation than in a post-war situation. And I think timing is important here. Uh, and in France, the same thing is happening as well. There are investigations, there are calls. Um, there's actually uh, an intense call for the nationalization of the, of the defense sector in France. Interestingly, coming from the military itself, the French army uh, wanted uh, the sector nationalized, in part because they wanted um, access to it. They wanted to guarantee uh, that the military would have priority over civilian uh, commercial markets. Um, that Renault is making automobiles for French consumers um, and they want to be able to tell Renault that they have to make tanks um, because there's a war coming. Um, and so the military oddly sort of uh, ends up in alliance with the Popular Front government uh, that comes in um, to sort of actually nationalize the sector um, after, afterwards. So this is, there's a global aspect to the story that I have only begun to investigate. Now, if these were uh, widely held views on contemporary politics, they also depended on widely shared popular understandings of the causes and consequences of the world war. And in this, the Nye Committee uh, should also be seen as part and parcel of that generation's uh, revisionist or debunking historians. Um, and these included elite scholars, such as Harvard professor Sidney Fay, uh, who kicked things off in 1920 uh, with an article in the American Historical Review that shed, quote, new light on the origins of the World War, um, which uh, questioned, uh, called into question Germany's sole responsibility for its origins. Um, this new light uh, certainly generated much heat, but obscured uh, some, of the, uh, some of what uh, have was prompting it in the beginning, in particular the secret funds that came to support his research um, from the Weimar German government, um, which spent a great deal of time and money in the 1920s to fund uh, alternative in interpretations of the war's origins, um, ones that would, would undermine the War Guilt Clause, Article 231 of the Treaty of Versailles, and if, uh, with the German government's thinking that if they could do so, they could thereby call into question uh, the imposition of reparations payments that were then crippling the German economy. Right? So there's a politics of, of historical knowledge uh, very much at, at work. Um, now, some of it is coming um, from, you know, from uh, people like Sidney Fay, but there's a lot coming from rabble-rousing contrarians uh, and debunkers 
uh, most particularly Harry Elmer Barnes, um, a sort of uh, amazing and annoying figure, um, whose uh, book, 1926 book, Genesis of the World War, um, really sort of sets him uh, up as the leading contrarian um, who is actually unwilling to accept uh, sort of Germany's solitary guilt and sort of blame, and actually puts most of the blame on Britain. Um, and this sort of uh, sort of contrarian uh, sort of position sets him on a path to fame and fortune. Uh, eventually, later, uh, sets him on a path toward uh, complete ill repute um, as one of the first Holocaust denialists um, in the 1940s. Um, so it can be very hard to write about Barnes um, in the 1920s without knowing what happens to Barnes in the 1940s. But this popular reinterpretation of the war didn't require funding from the German government, and it didn't require uh, theories, crackpot or otherwise, to sway an American public that was already conditioned to imagine uh, that only nefariousness could have drawn him into that conflict. Into a conflict that, by the 1920s and 30s, they were already understanding, as Walter Lippmann put it, as um, uh, an effort to turn the world into something or other that it did not become. Right? So that sense, that popular sense, that the war had been a mistake and a waste, um, and some sense that, that no American in their right mind would have chosen to join it. So we must have somehow been tricked or fooled or dragged into it. Right? Now, they, during the war, they blamed the Germans, said to be in league with the brewing industry to buy up Midwestern newspapers, which they did, uh, said uh, to be subsidizing the most articulate defenders of neutrality, which they did, um, said to be stirring up trouble on the, quote, Negro question by circulating the Chicago Defender in the rural South, which they did not. Um, after the war, it was the British who came under the glare um, in exposés such as Campbell Stewart's Secrets of Crew House from 1920 and Arthur Ponsonby's uh, Falsehood in Wartime from 1928. Readers learned of British actions to cut the Germans' transatlantic cables and thereby control the inflow of war news to the United States, which they did. They learned that British propagandists had leaked uh, the Zimmerman telegram at a crucial moment to draw the United States into the war, which they did. Um, and they learned that the British had deliberately falsified accounts of German atrocity in civilian Belgium, which they did, um, although, although just sticking to the truth would have been actually atrocious enough. So the 1920s and the 1930s um, are coming uh, as uh, you know, well into debates over sort of who has tricked the Americans into the war. But it's a, it's a searing and searching debate about why the war had happened, who was responsible for it, and who had profited from it. Um, now this was the mass production of historical knowledge happening inside the academy, happening in the public press, happening in government documents, happening in those sort of checker-playing, beer-drinking, low houses um, where, uh, where, we, where we tend not to look for the production of historical knowledge, but where we ought to look more carefully. Now, after 1935, uh, as war clouds gathered, much of the committee's energy was channeled away from uh, rethinking the last war and into preventing the next one. Nye and his allies supported the Neutrality Acts of 1935, 36, 37, and 39. Uh, Nye himself would become a leading figure in the America First movement in 1941. But despite the broad appeal of its argument and its proposed policies, nothing came of the Nye Committee's recommendations. Right? This is the the best argument for me not writing a book about this. And, um, but in part, that's because they were bad historians. Uh, they had framed their inquiry into causation in such a way that only a smoking gun could prove it. Right? Only a smoking gun, that, you know, a telegram from uh, you know, J.P. Morgan to the DuPont family saying, you know, 
get those Americans to do what we tell them to do. And of course, there, no such document exists. Right? Um, and when they couldn't uh, provide one, their explanations faltered. Uh, Nye wasn't helped, of course, when business began to fight back. J.P. Morgan Jr. Uh, embraced uh, his bank's options, uh, actions. In 1914, he said it had been quite, quote, quite impossible to be impartial as between right and wrong. And in fact, he boasted that the House of Morgan had done, quote, all that was lawfully in our power to help the Allies win the war as soon as possible. The DuPont Company hired legendary ad man Bruce Barton to spread the word that, quote, the profit motive was a powerful weapon in its own right, right? Uh, sort of creating a sort of free enterprise argument uh, linking American war interests with, with the free enterprise system. Soon, competing government commissions were formed. Um, FDR realizes that the Nye Committee is full of um, crackpots and, and enemies, um, and so he sets up an alternative executive committee with Bernard Baruch at its head, uh, which proves one of the iron laws of 20th century American history, which is if you have a problem that you need fixing, you call Bernard Baruch. Right? Um, and after uh, Nye's uh, personal attack on Wilson and his legacy, Democrats in Congress starved the Committee of Money, and it very quickly sh uh, closed up shop. Um, within, within six weeks, it was, it was over. So we are left in the end with shambles, right? with Nye attacked by the Democrats, abandoned by the Republicans, and voted out in 1944 by the people of North Dakota, to a feminist peace movement unable to advance its legislative aims, to the revisionist historians of the, of the interwar years, increasingly marginal uh, afterward to the historical profession and to the popular press. The committee's report languished on the shelf until Pearl Harbor, when War Department officials realized that uh, the investigation and oversight weren't such bad things after all. In fact, when the war came, uh, the government had a much better sense of the munitions industry's capacity and its supply chain uh, than they would have if the Nye Committee had never done its work. Right? So if I have a policy argument uh, to make in this project, it is that um, congressional oversight of the defense industry is actually good for the military. Uh, and what about the merchants of death theory? Uh, at a meeting of the Veterans of Foreign Wars in 1937, an obscure Louisiana state senator by the name of Ernest Clements reflected that the Great War had, quote, led to 100,000 soldiers dead to make a bunch of skunks American millionaires. Now, the decades since have done a great deal to ridicule the position of people like Clements. Dismissed uh, at times as the rantings of an isolationist uh, or of an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, then dismissed as the concerns of a long-haired hippie raving about the military-industrial complex, or of a latte-drinking leftist urging no blood for oil. But as a society, Americans have not really accounted for the Nye Committee's fundamental question. What is the influence of the defense industry on the making of US foreign policy? They have not answered it in an empirical sense. What was the causal relationship between those 100,000 soldiers dead, an empirical fact, and those American millionaires, an empirical fact, skunks or otherwise. Nor have they grappled with it in a political, constitutional, or philosophical sense to think through the relationship between profit, national interest, and civic duty. Is, it, is profit an obstacle to peace, uh, as we were told at The Hague? Or is it a weapon in the arsenal of democracy, as DuPont tells us? Will wars be better fought if citizens have an economic interest in their outcome, or if they do not? Who should set the terms 
of defense priorities and expenditures. Who gets to decide, right? government, business, or the army? Can we imagine a contracting system in the defense sector without profit uh, when it doesn't exist in any other sector of the American economy? How do you get private industry to enter a sector uh, without profit? Can we distinguish the profit motive uh, in war in general from profit motives that might push Americans to support one side or another? Right? Those were big questions between 1934 and 1936, debates at least as much about the war Americans had just had as about the war that many feared was coming on the horizon. And we have done a bad job of remembering the contours of that debate. And we have, in fact, done very little to, in fact, answer those questions. And my, if I have a, a sort of political aim in this project, uh, is not actually to uh, give to tell you what the answers to those questions are, but to ask Americans to actually at least ask and debate and answer them. Those are questions we have to talk about together. Um, we certainly don't really remember the Nye Committee. Uh, we don't really remember Gerald Nye. We did certainly don't remember Dorothy Detzer. They have all faded from memory. Uh, before you walked into the room today, uh, probably many of you had never heard of Gerald Nye or certainly of Dorothy Detzer. Um, but there's probably one such figure left over from that period who you have heard of. Um, the, the longest lingering shadow of that moment um, is actually sort of left to us from a cartoon story of a little red-haired girl named Little Orphan Annie. <laughs> so think carefully about her millionaire stepfather, right, uh, a personification of villainy in the interwar years, and his name, Daddy Warbucks. So, thank you. <laughs>